John chapter 1, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to them, said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Well, first off, before I get started in our, our study this morning, I just want to say um, it is really good to be back. It feels like it's only been like a week or so since I've been here, but I, um, warning, I haven't preached in a long time, and so Ashley normally tells me that if I don't get to talk on a weekly basis for an hour or two at a time, then it gets pretty long-winded, so I'm going to try to be disciplined about that this morning, but I just want to say... Um, thanks so much um, for everyone's leadership and every, I mean, it just, to the media team, I'm able to keep up with what's going on from week to week if I'm not here. Uh, my schedule has been really, really intense. Um, so, so, you know, being able to have strong leadership in place and strong volunteer um, base in place, a lot of talented, gifted people. I got just got to tell you, whenever we, whenever we got ready to actually take a step towards planning Sulphur Community Church, this, uh, this project that I'm currently assigned to uh, was already on the books, and we kind of knew that this was coming, and, and we really weren't sure what it would look like. We were two years away from it, uh, and so we just said, God, it's yours anyway, and so you'll do what you want to do with it, and just we pray that our, you know, our hearts would remain faithful, that God's going to take care of everything, and he has absolutely gone above uh, and beyond and blew out all of our expectations about what this would look like in this season where uh, I'm barely around and this thing is, you know, God is being glorified in, in service and in preaching and worship and volunteerism. And so it's just amazing to see that. And it, it really, really, um, it really, really just blows my heart up to know that God's just faithful, man. He just, he's just really faithful. And when you know, maybe to back up and rewind a little bit further, 
and this is going to kind of lead into our study today. Whenever we first started feeling the nudge to plant Sulphur Community Church, I've, I've told this story a, a few times. Um, there, was, there was about a two and a half to three year gap before we actually took the first step. Uh, we started just praying about it, having conversations about it. Um, is, this God, is this what God wants us to do? And that question was asked for several reasons, but for the main reason, the, the main reason we, we kind of paused and we would ask friends, we would ask brothers and sisters in Christ, we would ask our leaders, we would ask people uh, that we trusted to check our hearts, to examine our motives, and to make sure that there was no wicked way in us that would cause us to want to, to step forward and plant Sulphur Community Church. Uh, God affirmed a lot of things along that way, but it was, that was the constant question is, um, that, that, that I know personally that I was asking myself, and I know that Ashley was asking uh, personally as well, is, God, are we pursuing, uh, are we, are we pursuing self-promotion here? Are we pursuing selfish desires by doing this? Do we have selfish motives for what we're doing? And we kept asking those questions, and we kept asking friends and leaders and people that we trusted, brothers and sisters who knew us and knew us well, is, this, is, is God calling us to do this? And if so, are our motives pure? Because here's the deal. A lot of churches start because somebody was doing a bad job somewhere. And that was not the reason we wanted to see Sulphur Community start. We, first of all, it started with a clear call from God. Uh, and then after that, it was uh, God show us where and, and the need and how this thing needs to look. And, and it's still, he's still doing his, his thing with Sulphur Community Church. And we still ask that question. Are we pursuing self-promotion? Are we pursuing selfish desires? And so... Uh, that's something that we're, we're going to constantly pray for, that God would continue to keep our hearts pure, that we would be obedient to follow in wherever he would lead us. Uh, however this thing needs to go, it's his. It's not ours. Uh, he's just asked us to participate in that. And so we continue to ask that question. Why do I say these things? Why do I, why do I open up sharing that story with you as far as our past? Um, ambition can lead you to places that you never thought you would land. Uh, you can start out with good motives if you, if you felt, felt led to something or called to something, and it can actually turn into something else. Am ambition in itself is not um, a bad thing, but sin has touched every part of our lives. And so we can set out to do something great and feel, feel the movement of the Spirit of God to, to do something impossible for God. And along that journey, our ambitions and our, and our motives can become tainted because we are sinful and broken people. And we'd work hard um, to, to do something big, and we want God to be glorified in it, but we can quickly get a, a fog about us and say, you know what, this is things about me, or, or maybe not even vocalize that, but our actions and our attitude and our heart would, might be in that place where our ambitions, when we started, this thing was all about God, and it was all centered on God, and then along the way somewhere, we may have gotten caught up in self. We may have gotten caught up in, in, in self-promotion, pursuing selfish desires. And so our battle cry 
since this whole thing has begun, and you've heard me say it before, it's like, God, I'm praying that we become a kingdom of nobodies, a no-name group of people, that no one would remember our names when the day is done. And so that's what we've been praying for, and that's what we've been asking God for. And I'm going to tell you what, human nature, it's a battle. It's a battle to, to, to fight against that, to say, God, we, want, we don't want to be known. We want you to be known. We don't want our name to be held here. We want your name to be lifted up high. We, we want to be a kingdom of nobodies, and we want Jesus to be a big deal in the neighborhoods and in the nations. And that's our goal, and that's what we set out for. So today, this message, I, I've had times where people have come up to me after, after we've had a talk and and, and they say, you know what, I don't know if you were talking to anybody else in the room, but you were talking directly to me today. That was something that I needed here. Let me just tell you that this message today is for every single one of us in the room. It's for every one of us. Uh, and so please, everybody, um, trek with me uh, as, we, as we jump off into the text. We arrive at a place in the Bible where we see a man who actually redeems ambition for the glory of God that he, he does have ambition, and he is working hard, and he is striving to make God known uh, in the place where God has him. So he redeems am, ambition. A man who Jesus said, David told us, the, just showed us this uh, just a couple of weeks ago, that, that um, among every person born of a woman, there has arisen no one greater than John the baptizer. No one born among man except Jesus himself is greater than John. Right, and that's what he says. So, so that's pretty high standards. Um, John is—he's um, doing something right to catch Jesus's eye that way, and to say, "Man, this is the greatest guy to ever walk the face of the earth." Like, if Jesus said that about us, man, that's—what does that do to us? What would that do to John? And I think that's where we're going to be going today. Uh, how did how did we respond to that? How does John respond to that that claim that Christ put on his on his life? And so. The culture that we live in is polar opposite uh, to, to the attitude that John had as he pointed people to Jesus. Our culture is completely opposite of that. Our culture is very narcissistic, uh, very self-centered, all about self-promotion, um, all about being famous. We are obsessed with personalities and celebrities. Like, think about it. We are obsessed with these things. We, we are a culture of people who set up people as gods and then try to emulate those gods that we set up. We idolize people. Our hearts are idol factories, right? We've, we've gone over that before. Like, that's just, that's what we're about. And, and so, I mean, you just think about it even today, and I'm speaking to a group who this should land pretty heavy on you, even in our uh, interactions on social media, right? Like, we are seeking self-gratification. We desire self-promotion. How many followers do I have? How many people are interacting with me? How many people know me? How many people know my name? How many, how many people am I able to influence? And so it's all about self-centeredness. And that's our culture. And, and that's what our culture teaches about mankind. Culture that's all about me. And the church's response to this seems to be this weird, um, we would like to call it meekness, but it, it kind of smells like passivity. 
right? We, we, don't, we don't necessarily, what we would do, the, okay, so the Bible teaches that um, meekness to be low, to be brought low, to be, to be humble in view of myself. The Bible would say that that's a beautiful thing, to, to be able to, to, to be humble and to be brought low, and, and it's just a beautiful thing, and, and the Bible never teaches that meekness is passivity, that it's just, well, that's, we're not, we're going to shrink back. We're not going to, we're not going to have a lot of great ambition. We're not going to strive for something great because it can end up, that's what the culture does. The culture, uh, it, it strives towards self-centeredness and selfish desires, and that's what culture pursues, and we don't want a part of it, so we're going to separate ourselves so much that it looks like we're just being meek, and we're just not going to, we're not trying to put a light on ourselves, and so we don't want to step out there and do anything that might cause attention to come our way, and that's passivity. That's not ambition. That's what we see John doing here is redeeming ambition, so meekness is not avoiding confrontation, okay? Whenever there's something that needs to be dealt with, and we just avoid that, that's not us being meek and humble. I'm just not going to step into that, and that's, you know, that's none of my business, and uh, meekness is not hiding behind this false pretense of humility, right, that, that, that as an excuse to say, I'm not going to step out and lead people because if I step out and say, hey, guys, I got a vision, let's go this way, then people might think I'm trying to do some kind of self-promotion, and I don't want to do that either. Okay, so that's not meekness either. And so the Bible is defining that for us. Meekness is not running from the call of God on our lives, in the name of false humility, like I'm not going to do that because that would look like I'm trying to promote myself. That would look like I would be trying to make a name for myself, so I don't want to go there. I don't want to do that. That's not meekness either. That's passivity. Meekness is to be like Jesus. That's our model, like using all that you have, all of your talents, all of your time, all of your life, all of your energy to go as far as you can possibly go for the glory of God and the good of all people. And that's, that's meekness. And, and Jesus, Jesus went for greatness, and he did it for the glory of God and the good of people. And so it's okay for us to step out and do this. Meekness is actually seeking greatness, but this greatness is completely influenced by the gospel. Okay, and so should we seek greatness? Absolutely. But all of the greatness and all of our ambition should be influenced and fueled by the gospel the good news of Jesus. And so my prayer for this church, for Sulphur Community Church, is that we would not be narcissistic, that we would not be self-promoters, that we wouldn't be about branding, that we wouldn't be about certain people having certain influences, that we wouldn't be about all those things. That's my prayer. But also, I don't want this church to be afraid of pursuing greatness in the face of Jesus, to step out and to do something huge, Influenced by the gospel. At the end of the day, the name Sulphur Community Church, the people who lead this church, the people who serve well in this church, all those things fade away. And at the end of it all, Jesus will be king eternally. And so that's where the light needs to shine. That's where we need to strive for greatness. Gospel influence. And so my prayer today is that we could be a people who would resemble John the baptizer. Like, I don't want us to say, okay, we're going to take 
John the Baptist, and we're going to show, uh, here's a model of what you need to look like. I don't want us to go there. That's not what Scripture has. What I want you to see is John the Baptist sought greatness. He had, he had big ambitions, and they were all influenced by the gospel. They were all fueled by the gospel. And then his name slowly fades out of Scripture, quickly. It comes in and goes out quickly. And Jesus is left at the center of the word. And so I want us to be a church. I want us to be a group of people who would push all their chips to the middle of the table because Jesus is worthy and much more worthy than all of those things. And that's where we're at. And so how do we pull off pursuing greatness? So I want to I go after greatness. I have great ambitions, but how do I do that and remain humble? How do I do that and maintain humility? How do I do that in a way that's not self-centered? How do I do that in a way that doesn't fuel my selfish desires because we all have them? This message is for everybody in the room today. And so we're going to go through a few things looking at John the Baptist. But the very first thing, gospel-centered, gospel-saturated, our identity is found in Jesus. And that's the number one top-shelf overarching truth about how we pursue greatness and remain humble, maintain humility, is we find our identity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 19. David read these words for us just earlier. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah had said. So leaders and representatives of the Pharisees uh, come to John, and they begin to grill him because his ministry out in the middle of the desert is exploding right now. Thousands of people are following him. This is a guy who has reduced himself to bare necessities. He's wearing camel's hair. He's eating bugs and wild honey, and his ministry is blowing up, and he preaches this message of repentance, and then he does something really, really unusual. He actually baptizes people in water. Like he, he, he takes these large crowds, large crowds who, are, who are following him, um, people who are Jews by birth, and he's baptizing them in, in water as if, as if they're proselytes, as if they're Gentiles who've been converted. He's baptizing them that way. And he, he preaches this message of repentance. And this is a big deal because here's the deal. Jewish people... Um, they believed that their standing with God was acceptable solely based on genetics. Because they were, from the lineage of Abraham, they were acceptable to God. That they were righteous. They were in right standing with God because of their bloodline. And so this was, this was a little bit um, scandalous that Jesus was doing this. That he was preaching a message of repentance and that he was baptizing uh, these Jewish people. And his message was, hey, the Messiah is coming. He's on his way. And the Messiah is not impressed. He does not give a rip about your lineage, about your bloodline, about your race, any rituals that you participate in. He doesn't care about any of those things. What he cares about is repentance and faith. And so repent and be baptized. Put your faith 
in God. He's preaching this message of repentance and faith. And this was something, as he baptized these Jews, this was something that was only done to the people outside of Israel who, who converted. And so he's telling everyone, repent of your sin. Repent of your sin. Put your faith in God. The Messiah is on his way. He's a witness to the Messiah. And the leaders of this day, they think he's a lunatic, okay? Uh, set the picture up in your mind for just a second. This cat is out in the middle of nowhere screaming this message of repentance, baptizing people with water. He looks like a freak, and he's got a huge following of people. So what's going on? And these leaders go out there and say, we need to confirm some suspicions that we have about this crazy guy um, because something's going on. People are following him. He's having influence, and he's preaching a message of repentance. And they ask him, when they, when they get to him, they ask him one of the most important questions in all of life. Even today, the question of utmost importance that every person tries to answer, who are you? Who are you? And that's the question that they come with to John the Baptist with. Who are you? And all of John's response is in light of the Messiah, in light of the assignment that the Messiah has given him. He doesn't reach uh, for his identity in his preaching card. says, well, you know what? I got a pretty good message here, and I'm, I'm a pretty dynamic speaker, and so that's who I am. I'm the guy who's, who's making a way out here in the desert, and, and that's my identity. He doesn't go there, and he doesn't say, look around at all the people. Look at all the followers I've got. That's where my identity's found. He doesn't go there either. He doesn't pull out his disciple maker's uh, club card and say, hey, I'm one of the biggest deals around here when it comes to disciple making. That's who I am. He doesn't pull any of those. All of his responses are influenced by the assignment that his Messiah gave him. He confesses, I am not the Christ. I am not the one to come. I am not the Messiah. And instead he points and he says to the Messiah and says, I'm the voice. I'm the one with the message. I'm the witness. I'm, I'm nobody. And I belong to the kingdom of nobodies. And I'm going to reduce, and my name's going to quickly be erased from this whole story. And this guy is going to be front and center, and he's always been front and center. I'm just a voice, and my job, my life, my passion, my calling is to be the one that points to the Messiah because it's all about him. And that's where my whole life is wrapped around. That's where my whole identity, that's where it's found. That's what my purpose is. That's what my life goal is. That's what my ambitions are, to pursue greatness. And greatness means that the Messiah will, will be front and center, that he'll be in the spotlight. So what's this mean? What does all of these things mean for us? Here today in this room where this message is applicable to every single one of us, how does this How does this? hit us, and how does this land on us? Well, let me just say this. I'm not going to say anything that uh, you don't already know. We are broken and sinful people. All of us. All of us are broken, and all of us are sinful people. And in our brokenness, in this brokenness, and in this sinfulness, and in this shame, that question that, that we long for an answer for, who am I? Who am I? Every religion and every philosophy ever developed in the universe was developed around that question. Who are you? Who am I? Like we would want to say, why do I exist? But it has to start with, who am I? 
And every religion and every philosophy in the universe was created in an attempt for man to answer that question. Our culture and many of you in this room think that you can go to work, that you can go to people, that you can go to money, that you can go to possessions, that you can go to success, religion, wherever to answer that question. And wherever you're going in this moment, for the answer to that question, that's your God. Wherever you're at right now trying to seek that answer, who am I? You're going to your makeshift God. You're going to your idol for that answer. So we are, um, we're driven by people, by what people think of us. Like that's what drives us. This message is for everybody in the room today. We are driven by what people think of us. Everything in life, we exhaust ourselves, we exhaust our resources, our time, our talents, so that people would think good of us, that they would have high expectations, and we're driven this way. All of society, as everybody in this room, is driven by success and appearance and acceptance, all of this, and wealth, and John will say to us, all these things that you're driven by pale in comparison to Christ. To, to your identity that's found in Christ. All of those things, just, they're just a shadow. They're nothing. They're reduced in light of who you are in Christ. The Apostle Paul would say in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing wealth, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Everything else is nothing. Everything else is garbage. It's all a heap of steaming dung and light of Christ and what I have in him. So the gospel is this, that Christ has come to you not only to save you, but to give you a whole new identity. So that means it changes the whole trajectory of your life. Everywhere you step, everything you think, say, do, live, breathe, is all about your identity found in Christ. He, just did, he didn't come just to save you from hell. He came to give you a whole new life, a whole new identity, to bring you into the family. We learned about that in the, in the, when we walked through the letter to the church at Ephesus, that the gospel says that you are adopted. Like, think about that for a second. The God didn't pick you based on your moral record. Like, he didn't pick you because you were well-behaved. None of us were well-behaved. We've been adopted that in spite of my behavior and in spite of my moral position, God came and he adopted me. And because God picked me, because God picked me, he can't unpick me. Like, I'm his. I don't get to unchoose when you think about adoption, you think about that. Like, I'm his. I got his name now. I'm in his family now. And so we're adopted. The gospel says that, and the gospel says that we're, we're called. Yes, we're called to salvation, but here's the deal. We've been called to participate in the building of the kingdom of God. 
And so it's not just about I'm saved. I was adopted and called to salvation, but I've been adopted into this family. I, I now serve the, the, the highest of high kings, and I get to call him dad because we're that close in Christ. That's where my identity's found. And then I'm called to, to work and, and to labor for the coming of his kingdom. That it's, it's here and it's not yet, right? Like the, the, the Jesus has come. He's ushered in this kingdom. And we're bringing it to a finale here in the way we serve and love this, this community and this world. So we have, a, we, have a, we have a purpose. We have a goal to participate in, um, in building God's kingdom. And so you might think um, that your job, where you work right now, that it's lame. Like, oh, my God, you know, this is... Just what it, where I'm at, and it's where God has me right now, and it's just kind of lame. And it might be. Your job might be lame. I'm not going to discount the fact that it might be. But regardless of your position that you hold at your job, hear me and hear me well. Your main and sole purpose in your job right now is to bring about the kingdom of God in that space. Period. Think about that for a second. Your main and sole purpose in the place where God has you right now is to bring about the kingdom of God in that space. And so while your job might be lame, you are exactly where God wants you to be. You are called to that place. You're in that current position because you are exactly where God wants you to be. And if you're a stay-at-home mom, that's part of your calling. If you're a student, that's part of your calling. If you're a business owner, if you're a baker, banker, butcher, that's part of your calling. It's where God has you in this moment. And so your identity is found in Jesus, not, not in the things that you do, not the successes that you're able to acquire, not the popularity, not your name, none of those things. Your identity is found in Christ. And that's the big point of John the Baptist here and how he answers who he is. So I'll tell you who I'm not, but I know who I belong to. I know why I've been sent. I know, this, the, I know the Messiah who's given me this assignment, and it's him. It's Jesus. And so all of our life, all of our ambitions need to be pointing to Christ, but it has to be done in humility. And so here's, here's where we go. Like, where do, where do I find humility? True humility, not false humility. Where do I find true humility? It's in the presence of Jesus. That's where true humility is found, is face-to-face with Jesus. Look at verse 25. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not even know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And so here we go. Remember, um, David took us through verse 6 through 8. It says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. So John's now he's affirming those things. He's saying, I'm not the one. I'm not the one. And then you look down at verse 15, and he says this again. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he, come, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And so here's these random spots that David was talking about. It's, it's, it seems out of place. It seems random in the text, but it's not. John's just saying, hey, this is, this is why I'm here. This is, this is why I've come. And, it, and you see this humility 
about him. That, that we, okay, so the significance of these words are underused in our day. That I can't, I, I can't even stoop down to, to untie his sandals. But hear me that in this society where this, this text was written, that, that had huge meaning. When John said that, he said, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and take off his sandal. That had meaning because teachers and, and students, rabbis and students, uh, uh, the way a rabbi and, and a student interacted, that student was near a slave to that rabbi. All of his tasks and all of his work, uh, he would have to do those things. It wasn't like a... Like a, a, a unjust slave owner and, and a slave, but a, a servant, a bond servant to his rabbi. But there was one thing that he didn't have to stoop so low to do, that it was understood in the culture that you don't go so low as to take off your rabbi's shoe. Like, we're going to add, like, as a rabbi and as a, as a student to a rabbi, you are to serve him as, as if you were his slave, everything. But you don't have to go that low. It's understood in this culture that you don't have to go that low to take off his sandal. And so when John says this, I'm not even worthy of that. That was unbelievable that he said that, that he was even able to feel that way, to say, that I can't even go the lowest of the low. I can't, even, I can't even make it there. I can't even go there. That's true humility. And humility in John's life was not found in comparing himself to his Pharisees, to these Pharisees that were here. John finds his humility not in looking at other broken people like we would. Like we, we have the tendency to do that. We'll say, well, let me look at the people in my circle and who, who am I greater than or lesser than. And he finds his humility and looking to Jesus, he, he sizes himself up. He stands next to Jesus and sizes himself up and says, no way, no way, not even close, not even in the ballpark. And comparing ourselves to one another leads to only one of two things. And I want you guys to think about this. One of two things it leads to. If I'm comparing myself to someone else, I'm either going to be left prideful or I'm going to be left discouraged. That's the only two, two responses when I try to compare myself to others, that I'm better than that person or I'm not better than that person. And, and both of those feelings are just horrible. And, and that's why we're not to compare ourselves with others. And humility isn't about stepping on people and it's not found in idolizing people. It can only come, true humility only comes through beholding the beauty of Jesus. That's it. That's the only place true humility comes from. Look at verse, we, we, you won't turn it, it'll be on the screen, but 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says this, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So to behold Jesus, to behold His beauty, is to become like Him. Like, that's, that's how we... That's how we aspire to true humility and true greatness is by beholding the beauty and the presence of Jesus. And it doesn't happen by trying hard. Like we don't become, we don't experience true humility by trying. 
You ever think about that for a second? Like if you knew you were humble in a situation, then you weren't humble in a situation. I mean, that's, I think C.S. Lewis said, said it like this, that humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. And so um, if I can reflect on some humble moments in my life, I wasn't humble at all. It was very prideful and very wicked of me to even consider that. And so the only way to overthrow pride is to look to Jesus. The only way to overcome and overthrow pride is by looking at Jesus. And this gospel greatness comes from our identity in Jesus, and it comes from finding our humility in Jesus, our identity and our humility found in Jesus. Seeing Jesus the right way, seeing Jesus rightly and correctly with gospel lens does two things. It shows me how sinful I am, and it shows me just how much he loves me. When I see and experience the presence of Jesus correctly, there's two things that happen. Woe is me. I'm a sinful and broken man, and I, and I dwell among sinful and broken people. But Jesus, you love me. You gave your life. You gave your everything so that I can be in right relationship with God. That's good news. And, and I don't, listen, I know that we're not overly charismatic, but if we was in another place, they'd be waving some hankies right now, man. I'm telling you, that's good news. That is good news. We find our identity and our humility in the presence of Jesus. Look at verse 29 with me. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, I just, I just want to pause just for a second and say, I know David has and I have been struggling through the gospel of John because Every three words, we need to stop and expound on some things. We've got to move through the book. And so there's, there's, there's a lot of sermons in the text that we're in today. I just want to, and, and here it is. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's purpose is now being fulfilled. Look, there's Jesus. There's the one. I'm not the one. None of you are the one. None of your, none of your moral behavior, none of your good deeds, none of those things He's the one who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. John is doing all of this, all of this that he, that's going down in the desert. He's doing it so that people would know the Lamb of God. That's his whole purpose. That's his whole life purpose. That's why he exists. You want to know why we exist? So that people would know the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That we're to point to the one and say, behold, the Lamb of God. There he is. It's not me. It's not us. We're not awesome. We stink. We're, we're no good. But our identity is found in Christ, so we have right standing with God, and we have a message and John has a message here. So our motivation, why we serve, is out of the love that Christ has shown us, the way he served us, the way he's loved us. John's working really, really, really hard. All right? Listen up here, worker bees. 
John's working really hard, man. He's preaching all day long, and not just all day long, but he's doing it every day. And I know that a lot of you haven't um, had an opportunity to, to, to preach a 30-minute or a 45-minute or a one-hour-long sermon, but I can tell you, you are out of gas when you're done. You're, you're, your tank is empty when you're done. So I couldn't imagine this guy all day long, and then he starts over the next day. He's a hard worker. He's preaching. Not only that, he's not preaching among dozens. He's preaching among thousands, and he doesn't have a microphone, so he's having to yell from the top of his lungs, the message, repent and believe, repent and be baptized. And he's doing all of this in the scorching heat of the desert. He's not doing it in an air-conditioned cafeteria, 45 minutes a week. This cat is working really, really, really hard. And as he does, people are responding and he is baptizing. And not to mention, he's also discipling people. He's got He's got students. He's got disciples. So that's another load on his wagon, right? He's got a lot of things going on. So here's what I'm going to say, that John the Baptist is leaving it all out on the field. Like he's pouring it all out. Everything he has, everything he's about his whole life is aimed here. He's a hard worker. Why? Why is he a hard worker? Why, what's driving him? What's motivating him to do this? Is it so that he can be thought of well? Is it that he could be accepted? Is it people, that his name would be, be made much of? That he would be popular here in the wilderness in, in, in Israel among these people? He's doing this because he's responding to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That that Lamb has come. That he is here. Look, behold him. He is serving out of a revelation of the one who would come and serve and not be served. Isn't that, isn't that a paradox? That John is serving the one who had come to serve him. That he's serving the one who ultimately came and served him and is serving him and is serving us by giving his life as a ransom for many of us. Isn't that great? Isn't it great that Jesus has served us and continues to serve us by giving of his sinful, sinless life taking on all of our sinfulness and all of our unrighteousness and giving us his righteousness. Isn't it great that he would serve us and continue to do so even when we didn't live like that, we were supposed to live like that, we don't live like that, and we can't live like that. Okay, it's not that now that you have Christ and your identity is found in him that you're just more well-behaved. You need Jesus every step of the way. That he is serving you every step of the way. So how do we serve? How are we motivated to love? Out of the love that Christ has shown us. That's it. And that's all that John was able to do. That was the only thing that he was able to set before these people who asked him, who are you? Well, I'm the one who's found in Christ. And I'm a nobody when it comes to Christ. And my whole life is about Christ. And my whole purpose and my whole life is about pointing people to Christ. So Jesus continues to serve us. He serves us as our peacemaker to God, and he serves us as our great high priest in all of our sorrows and in all of our fears. He continues to serve us always, and this is where our motivation and all of our courage and all of our patience 
is found when we go to the neighborhoods and to the nations. It's found in what Jesus has done for us, not in our own abilities, not in our own passions. I've said this before. If you go to serve people out of a love for people, that tank is going to run empty quick, and you're going to stop loving people quickly because people are hard. And, and serving people, the least of these, is hard work. And you're going to get frustrated, and you're going to want to quit. And so if you're not serving out of your love for Jesus, that you're found in him, your identity is in him, then you need to not serve. Then you're, 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 you're under some self-promotion there. So stop. Verse 32, And John bore witness, and I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. You set your life. How do I, how do I aspire to greatness with a humble attitude? We set our lives on beholding the beauty and the glory of Jesus. All of John's life is centered around Jesus. Every part of his life, everything he says, everything he does, it's all about Jesus. All of it. Colossians 1 says, And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Preeminent, that, that Jesus would be over, that he would be above, that he would be at the core and the center of everything. So all of our actions, all of our words, all of our deeds, everything we say, everything we do, Christ is preeminent in those things, that he is above, in, and around all of those things. He's at the core of everything. And if you're a follower of Jesus, your highest calling, your highest purpose and your highest responsibility is to be a witness to Jesus. Period. That is the highest calling. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are to be pointing to Jesus in the way you work, in the way you serve, in the way you love people, in the way you share your possessions, your times, your talents. Your marriage is to point the world to Jesus. Your marriage is a sermon on display for the world. It's a gospel-centered sermon on display for the world. That's what your marriage is. So everything you do, Christ is preeminent in those things. Your parenting is to point the world to Jesus. And let me tell you this. There will be there will be minute-by-minute opportunities for you to point your children to Jesus, to point them to the gospel. You, there are more opportunities available to you to point your children to Jesus and point them to the good news than, than, than anywhere else. Because here's the deal. My children aren't perfect. You won't have perfect children. What a great opportunity to share the gospel with them and to show them the gospel. To say that it's not a, your behavior, good or bad, your behavior is that that's from your sinfulness and your brokenness. But get this, in Christ, you, 
you can work through those issues that it's not good behavior leads to this and bad behavior leads to that. They're born in sin, just like every one of us. And so we will have minute-by-minute opportunities to point our children to the gospel and the world to the gospel through the way we parent. So Christ is preeminent in our parenting. Your generosity will teach this world that your love for Jesus shadows, darkens, hides, pushes in the corner, and sets on fire your love for money. That it completely destroys your aspirations to become rich. Your love for Jesus. Your talents and your gifts, they're all on loan to you from God. You didn't earn those. You didn't create those. Those aren't things that you were just... You know, you were able to muster up yourself. Every talent and every gift given to you is on loan to you from God. And Christ is to be preeminent in those things. He's to be preeminent in the way you are to use these. And self-promotion is not God-glorifying. So you take your talents and your time and your abilities, your gifts, the things that God has given, let you borrow, and you do not use them to point to yourself. If anybody had room or space to do that, John the Baptist did. Jesus Christ himself said, this is the greatest man that's ever walked earth, right here, this guy. So if anybody had reason for self-promotion out of his giftedness and out of his calling and out of the, the talents that he'd been given, it would be him. None of us have room to do that. They're not ours. So when Jesus, when Jesus is just a part of your life, you know, I, I always wonder about that question. Is Jesus a part of your life? When he's just a part of your life, then all of these things become about you. All of your gifts, all of your talents, they, come, they become about you. When Jesus has your whole life, when he is preeminent in your life, all of these things will point to him. It would be foolish to think that I would even waste those on myself. It would be foolish for me to think that way. So I want to be great. Like I, I want to I be great. But I don't want to be great like in the way that you say you would tell me, Blake, you're great. I don't want that. I want to be great because Jesus says I'm great. And guess what happens when Jesus says you're great? You become low. You decrease. No. No, in light of who Christ is, I am nothing. I'm not great. I want to be great in the kingdom. I want to aspire. I want to have ambition to, to see true greatness rise. I want to see Christ be made known. I want to do whatever it takes. And I need the, the power of the Holy Spirit to guard me from becoming egotistical, to become a self-promoter, to pursue selfish desires, because those things come along the way. Let me tell you something. They come every day. Opportunity presents itself every day to set myself up as somebody awesome. God, forgive me on the days that I take advantage of that. It happens. It happens to every single one of us. We will do whatever it takes to impress somebody. It's our nature. The only way to pursue greatness that is both God-glorifying and kingdom advancing is to find our identity in Christ, find our humility in Christ, 
that our passions to serve, our motivation to love others comes from the love of Christ and to behold the beauty and embrace the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, takes away my sin, and takes away your sin. Let's pray.